When I finished my clinical training, I was very disillusioned because I saw the methods that I'd been taught do too much harm, particularly adverse drug reactions, as well as not teaching people how to avoid illness. And I felt there had to be a better way, but I didn't know what it was. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Hello, this is the first episode that I'm releasing after the summer break. I know that over the summer, the podcast has picked up thousands of new listeners. So thank you to everybody who has shared the show and previous episodes with your communities. If this is your first time coming to my show, welcome. And to my long-term listeners, welcome back. I hope all of you had a good summer. Now, Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know about a new offering from the podcast. Now, I appreciate that many of you would prefer to listen to the show with no adverts. And actually, for the first year or so of the show, there were no adverts. I created the podcast to try and share helpful, inspiring information with as many people as possible. And the truth is, I had no idea how popular the podcast would become, nor how much work each episode involves. It may surprise you, but there are at least seven people who are involved with the creation of each and every show. And of course, they all need paying. So the sponsors I work with are absolutely essential to make the show sustainable. And I'm really particular with who I actually have supporting the show. I actually turned down close to 90% of all approaches as they are simply not aligned with who I am and what I stand for. Having said that, I completely understand that some of you would like to listen to just the conversation with no ads at all. And that is why I've decided to partner with this brilliant company called Supercast. Now, for those of you who sign up to this new members-only community, you will get an ad-free listening experience. And more importantly, you'll get access to an exclusive monthly episode where I will be answering questions submitted by members. Now, with the best will in the world, I cannot answer every question that is asked of me on social media, but this new Ask Me Anything feature for members will allow me to focus on what is really important to you and to provide a more meaningful and considered response to questions. Now, I'm really excited about this new offering, and I really feel that the questions and topics submitted by you will make a big difference to the way I shape future book and podcast content. The cost to join this community is £7 per month, which is just under $10 a month for those of you in the US. Let's put it in context. Most coffees in a coffee shop these days are at least £2.50, if not more. So this £7 per month subscription is actually less than the price of three coffees. I'm really excited about growing this members community. I think what I offer will probably evolve and expand over time. And as a special thank you, for your support and to encourage you to give this a go, I've created a special founding members offer of £5 per month, which will be valid for the lifetime of your subscription if you sign up before the end of October 2021. Remember, the usual monthly cost is £7, but there's a special offer right at the start where it's only £5 per month. If you are interested, please head over to drchatterjee.com forward slash membership where you can find out more. Now, I just want to be really clear. 
The content of my podcast is not changing. All episodes will be released free of charge as per usual. For those of you who are not worried about adverts or who actually like to listen to the ads and the products and services that I recommend, you don't need to do anything differently. My team and I will continue to give you the same quality content each week that you already know and love. The new offering is just for people who want to support the podcast, receive ad-free episodes, as well as the monthly bonus Ask Me Anything episode. Right, on to this week's episode, which is episode 200. Wow, where did all the time go? I have a very special guest, Dr. Andrew Weil. Now, Andrew's credentials really are second to none. He started off his career studying at Harvard Medical School back in the 1960s, and he's regarded as a pioneer in the field of integrative health. He's the founder and director of the University of Arizona's Center for Integrative Medicine, where he's also clinical professor of medicine and professor of public health. Andrew is someone who I've been wanting to speak to for quite some time because I feel he's someone who's always been ahead of the game and in reality, ahead of the mainstream narrative around health for more than 50 years. He, much like myself, believes in a healing-orientated approach to healthcare, bringing together mind, body, and spirit. In today's conversation, we cover a wide variety of different areas, including inflammation, what it is, where it comes from, how it's responsible for many modern diseases like cancer, heart disease, and depression, and importantly, what we can do to prevent it. Andrew shares his own anti-inflammatory eating plan that he's been promoting with his patients for decades. And we also talk about the importance of reducing stress and the many ways in which we can do this, including a really simple ancient yogic breathing practice that he has seen be transformative with so many of his patients. We talk about how the practice of medicine has evolved and how it needs to continue to evolve the lost art of listening, and the many shortcomings of modern Western medicine, including how being a doctor today can often mean simply giving out drugs to mask symptoms. We also cover the placebo effects, the power of our minds, the benefits of matcha tea, the value of sacred rituals, and also Andrew shares some good news about dark chocolate. So much of my approach to health is aligned with Dr. Andrew Wiles. I really did enjoy this conversation. It's positive, it's practical, and it's uplifting. I really hope you enjoyed listening. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to the sponsors of the show. Now, in the show today, you're going to hear a lot about the gut microbiome, these trillions of gut bugs that live inside our guts. Now, with all the talk about the bacteria inside our guts, we should also remember that the good bugs we need to nurture us are also found in other parts of the body, including our mouths. The oral microbiome is a delicate ecosystem that needs the right balance of bacteria to keep our mouths healthy. It is the gateway to seeding those good gut bugs and also our mouth's most powerful defense system. Sendium it's the first toothpaste that I've come across which has been shown to improve the balance of the oral microbiome. And it contains some of the same natural enzymes and proteins that are found in saliva to help boost levels of good bacteria in the mouth and reduce levels of harmful bacteria to strengthen the mouth's natural defenses. 
My family and I have been using Zendium for about a couple of years now. It's a mild formula, makes it particularly suitable for those with delicate mouths, including kids. Another reason I like to recommend Zendium is that it's not just kind to the mouth, it's also kind to the planet. All of their toothpaste come without a box to reduce waste, and the tubes are fully recyclable. If you want to give Zendium a try, you can now get hold of it at boot stores across the UK, as well as online at boots.com, Ocado, Amazon, and also at Zendium.com. And now, onto my conversation with Dr. Andrew Wilde. My frustration with my education was that I really learned nothing about health and nothing about the nature of healing. So I really was not trained how to keep people well. When I got to medical school, I was very disappointed to find that the people who taught me pharmacology really knew nothing about the plant sources of the drugs that they were using. Um, I became interested in alternative medical practices at a young age. Um, I was just fascinated by the fact that I, there was no knowledge of this in the medical world. And uh, when I finished my clinical training, I was very disillusioned because I saw the methods that I'd been taught do too much harm, particularly adverse drug reactions, as well as not teaching people how to avoid illness. And I felt there had to be a better way, but I didn't know what it was. How did you go about that journey to find that better way because you know you've set up this amazing educational course uh, I think at Arizona University I understand uh, you are teaching clinicians you have been spreading this message across the globe for many many years but I'm interested as to how did you actually acquire the information that you weren't taught that you presumably thought you were going to get going to get taught when you went to medical school? Some of it was from observing my own body and being a, you know, paying close attention to how healing happened in, in my body. Then I really dropped out of medicine uh, in about 1969. I made my living uh, as a writer for a number of years. I found ways to travel around the world and uh, meet with and look at other kinds of healing traditions and healing practices. I did that for about three and a half years. I spent a lot of time in Latin America, South America, some in Africa, uh, some in Asia. And then at the end of that, <clears throat> I settled in Tucson, Arizona. My car broke down there. And it turned out that the person I had most to learn from had been there all the time and I didn't know about him. He was an elderly osteopathic physician named Robert Fulford. Um, he became one of my mentors and he was really the first person to really demonstrate to me the healing power of nature. He used very gentle manipulative treatment and produced remarkable cures and it was like nothing that I had been prepared to understand from my medical studies. It's interesting as I, as I hear you tell that story. I mean, first of all, I'm struck by the fact that your car broke down in Tucson and you never really left, which is, I think, speaks to destiny and fate and the kind of, you know, is there a path that's kind of laid out for us that we don't even know, right? That makes me, makes me, think, of, makes me think of that. But I also, I hear, this is what I hear in a, through a lot of your work is a real open-mindedness and... Just as many of us, when we travel the world, we see different cultures, we see different people, we 
reflect on our own lives and think, ah, well, actually, maybe there's a different way of doing things. It strikes me that your journey to learn about other healing modalities around the world is potentially something that all medical students should do, because otherwise we go straight from school into university, into medical school, straight out of that into practice in a very reductionist kind of system. Whereas you took a slight about turn, you went and saw all these different things, which which exposed you to things that many medical doctors simply never get exposed to. I think that's not just medical doctors. You know, this is one of the problems, I think, with America. It's a very big, isolated country, and uh, many Americans really have no knowledge of things outside of it. But I, I have learned so much from visiting, living in, um, studying other cultures about uh, food, about medicine, about all sorts of ideas. And then, you know, I'm very glad I had a good conventional medical education because I can compare these ideas with what I learned. And some of the ideas that I've come across in practices seem nonsensical to me, and they just don't make sense with what we know scientifically about the human body. So I'm glad I have that standard of comparison. When I uh, settled in, in Arizona, and it was because I fell in love with the desert and it was a stroke of fate, um, I, I had no intention of practicing medicine because I didn't know what I was good at. And I, as I said, I'd been very disillusioned. But patients started showing up at my doorstep because they had read things that I'd written or heard me speak. And they were very interesting patients, uh, you know, interesting medically, interesting as people. And I gradually found I was good at two things. One, I'm very good at diagnosis, which I do mostly by listening to people. Um, and I got very good at what I call being a therapeutic marriage broker. I can arrange happy alliances between patients and practitioners. I know who goes with whom, whether that's within the world of conventional medicine or outside of it. And I found that people wanted that kind of service. I called what I was doing natural and preventive medicine at first, and then I came to call it integrative medicine. And for many years, none of my medical colleagues paid any attention to what I was doing or writing or saying. I had a, a larger and larger following in the general public, but zero interest from medical colleagues. And that did not change until the early 1990s. And that was when the economics of healthcare, especially in the US, began to deteriorate. And it was only then that institutions began to open to what patients were asking for and the kinds of things that I was arguing for. You said that you're able to make a lot of your diagnoses by listening. And it seems to me that modern medicine, really the way we've gone we've sort of forgotten about this lost art of listening, that if you listen carefully to a patient, they'll kind of tell you what's going on. And it's something actually, I think I went to Edinburgh Medical School, you know, another prestigious European medical school. I was taught there that actually take a good history. Mm -hmm. You take a good history, you will pretty much get all you need to know. But somewhere along the line, when you start practicing, it becomes about scans and blood results and, you know, optimizing certain parameters. And, and I wonder what happened. Where did we sort of take that left turn and, and get away from actually listening to what our patients are telling us? 
Well, first of all, that art is not taught, and I don't think it's something that can be taught. It's something that can be modeled. Um, I, I have heard, I have had teachers who've said, I've read, that if you ask the right questions, patients will make the diagnosis for you in their own words. And I have found that absolutely to be true. But that assumes that you know how to ask questions, you know how to listen, and you have time to do that. And the great change that's happened, this, especially in the U.S. in recent years, is that the time allotted for patient visits has shrunk. Um, and this is because our healthcare has been forced into a for-profit system and doctors are no longer their own bosses and they're told how many patients they have to see a day and uh, the time allotted to spend with patients has shrunk sometimes to as little as five minutes. And it's probably not impossible to form a therapeutic relationship in that time, but it's very, very difficult. And not only is that a great tragedy for patients in the practice of medicine. It is for physicians also because I think one of the great rewards of practicing medicine in the past has been the formation of that therapeutic relationship with a patient. Yeah. What is it like for you that now in 2021, there are, I guess, lots of doctors, lots of medical doctors around the world, I guess like me, uh, but many others like me who are trying to promote a lot of ideas that you have been talking about for, I guess, over 50 years. Yes. You know, has that been, I don't know, is it frustrating it's taken so long? Is it been rewarding for you? You know, what are those emotions that come up for you when you see this? Well, certainly there was frustration in the early years. Uh, but, you know, I knew that what I was doing was right. I followed my own path. And it has been extremely rewarding. Uh, the center that I founded at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, which is a center of excellence, is the world leader in education in integrative medicine. Uh, we train health professionals. We've graduated over, I think, almost 2,500 physicians from intensive two-year fellowships. We also train other health professionals, medical students, residents. Uh, our our curriculum, um, a shorter curriculum, is now an accredited required part of residency training in over 80 residencies in the U.S. and some in other countries as Amazing. well. Very gratifying. And I and many of the people who've come to us for training have said that they were on the verge of dropping out of medicine because it had become so unsatisfying until they found that there was this field and like-minded colleagues. And I've always said that one day we'll be able to drop the word integrative. It'll just be good medicine. Yeah. I mean, talking to you is, is, is wonderful for me because, you know, these are the truths that I've found and I've discovered along my 20-year journey in medicine of really this desire to help patients and realize that actually there are many ways to get a patient better and that I need to just expand my toolbox more and more so I can help the patient, you know, identify and help them choose what are the right tools for them at the right time in their life yeah. that they can actually implement. And, you know, it's um, this thing about physician burnout, which is a massive problem. You know, everyone says it's because of the time pressure and the stress. And I think, of course, that is a component, but there's also a dissatisfaction in many doctors where they went to medical school, they thought they were going to learn how to get people better. But somewhere along the line, unless you're in like an acute or an intensive care type speciality, you know, a lot of the time you, you think, I'm just handing out pills, I'm just masking symptoms. And I think that is deeply dissatisfying at a really, at a really core level. 
I couldn't agree more, and it's also one of the things that most wrong with the healthcare system. We are dealing with epidemics of chronic diseases that are rooted in lifestyle choices, and we seem unable as societies to encourage people to make better choices and discourage them from making worse choices. And the methods of conventional medicine are simply not appropriate for managing these conditions. Yeah. Uh, and we do that mostly by giving uh, pharmaceutical medications, which often just uh, counteract or suppress symptoms and, and often in long-term use prolong or intensify disease processes. So I, I think you've summed that up very neatly and there have to be other ways of doing that. I'm always fascinated by the use of language and you said we seem to struggle to encourage people to make better lifestyle choices. And I love that word encourage because it's not fear-based. It's not trying to tell people off. It's trying to encourage them. And I guess I'd love to explore, is that the approach you have found to be most successful in your many years of practice? Or have you found sometimes a more sterner fear-based approach can be useful? I think both. And I think that's part of the art of, of treatment as well as to knowing what yeah. works best for an individual patient. Um, the, the problem, a big problem is that there are very powerful vested interests that work against uh, people making better choices. If you just look at nutrition as an example, um, in the U.S., we have made the unhealthiest food cheapest and most available, and people eat what's cheap and what's available. And some of that is because of federal subsidies uh, for commodity crops that make very unhealthy ingredients like high fructose corn syrup and refined soybean oil very cheap, so they're ubiquitous in, in inexpensive processed foods. And if you try to change that, you run up against uh, very powerful vested interests that don't want to see those changes made. I'll give you another you know, very discouraging example. The last I checked, about 46% of U.S. hospitals have fast food restaurants on their premises. Uh, I got a letter uh, a few years ago from a first-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania who had started a campaign to get a McDonald's out of the university hospital. He's got a petition that he got a lot of his fellow students to sign. He got publicity in the Philadelphia papers, and he was called in by the dean of students who told him if he persisted in this, he would jeopardize his medical degree. That is the problem. You know, the hospital had signed a deal with the devil. This is money, and they didn't want anything to change. You kind of see this problem everywhere, don't everywhere, you? Everywhere, yes. It, even outside health, you know, um, there's a there's a sport here in the UK. Well, it's an international sport, snooker, uh, that... You know, I love, my son loves, uh, we love playing together, we like to watch it. But unfortunately, all the tournaments are sponsored uh -huh. by gambling companies, yeah. right? Um, so therefore, and I know just how powerful advertising is on adults, let alone impressionable young minds. And you've got this conflict where he wants to watch, but I know every time he watches, he's getting marketed yeah. about gambling. And I'm, I'm assuming that Snooker will say, well, these are the only sponsors we can get yeah. to support the industry. And then <laughs> the players will probably say, well, they pay our income. And you just get in this kind of toxic circle where it's very hard to change. And that's kind of exactly the same in health, isn't it? Like, how can it be that nearly half of US hospitals have a fast food restaurant in them? I mean, we know the research. I mean, it seems remarkable, doesn't it? Which I guess is why it must be so gratifying to see that 
the things you've been promoting are now starting to gain traction, certainly more with the general public. I think also with physicians, I'm interested because I also started here in the UK, me and a couple of colleagues, we created a course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine that we managed to get fully accredited by the Royal College of GPs. So there's proper, you know, prestigious accreditation by the establishment. Um, I think it's the first course of its kind here in the UK where we create a framework of how people can apply these lifestyle principles in even in short consultation times. And, you know, the the feedback has been incredible. 95% of attendees have said it has significantly changed the way they practice. Mm -hmm. And it's very gratifying for me to be able to actually share what I've learned with so many healthcare professionals. But, But I find that it's a it certainly was a self-selected population. Mm -hmm. It tends to be people who are frustrated with medicine or they have faced a health issue themselves or in their family and they didn't want to take the drugs. They didn't want to go on Mm -hmm. lifelong medication. They started to look for other ways of getting better. And of course, I'd love it to be to the point like you've got it where actually it's a mandatory form of uh, training. We're not there yet. We're, We're gaining traction. But I'm interested in, as to your experience, you've been running this course for a while. How long did it take to gain traction? What kind of people uh, tend to come? What kind of physicians tend to come? Is there is there a pattern you see? And I guess before you answer that, I wonder if you could just define integrated medicine and what that term means to you. So the short answer is that integrative medicine is the intelligent combination of conventional medicine uh, with natural and preventive strategies. Um, with selected use of alternative medicine, a great emphasis on lifestyle medicine, on mind-body interactions, and the patient-practitioner relationship. Um, We certainly do not reject conventional medicine, uh, and we do not embrace alternative medicine uncritically. And I think at the beginning, the people who came to us were uh, people who were very disillusioned with medicine, and as I said, often on the point of dropping out. But now, increasingly, we get people coming because they they see the wisdom of this path and they want to be part of a community of, of like-minded people. We've trained people of all ages, all spe- I think all specialties. Um, a few years ago, the leading cardiothoracic surgeon in Tucson, it was then in his mid-60s, uh, astounded his colleagues by saying he was going to take our two-year fellowship and become an advocate for integrative medicine. Uh, We get a lot of people right out of residency. And as I said, we're now training people in residency, but really all specialties, all ages. We, there's a period when we've had far more women than men. Um, And interestingly, a lot of the men who've come to our fellowship have said that uh, they came because their wives made them do it, that their wives had read one of my books and said, you got to do this. And women have been in in the US have certainly been leaders in this movement. And uh, I think they get it more easily than a lot of men do. Yeah, I came over to America, I think in 2013, I was quite drawn to trying to look for the root cause of problems. And, you know, long story, but I was, uh, I had to care for my dad for many years. He had lupus, he was Mm -hmm. on kidney dialysis for 15 years. And it was only when dad died that I really had the time and space to go and actually pursue this. And my wife actually said to me, she said, Rongan, you keep talking about this. Why don't you jump on a plane, go and do a course, see if you like it. And actually, I loved it. 
It was really great to be around other medical doctors and and other healthcare professionals mm-hmm. who were open minded and were saying, "Look, there's you know there's a place for pharmaceutical medication, but there's also a place for other therapies, other treatment modalities that were not being taught." Yeah, Rongan, let me you made me think of two things. One is uh, with regard to lifestyle medicine, uh, there's a practical problem there uh, that lifestyle changes take time and effort, uh, whereas taking a a medication uh, does not. And I think you have to be able to appreciate that and be able to explain to patients why in the long run, um, dealing with disease problems through lifestyle changes, it's are, it's worth it, even though it takes time and effort, and why the, the quick fix of medication is going to fail you in the long term and may even get you into worse problems. So I think there are various techniques for doing that, but one is that I think the practitioner has to model health for the patient. I mean, you can't really tell a patient to eat better if you're not if you don't have good eating habits yourself. You can't tell them to be more physically active if you're not committed to that yourself. So you know that that I think we have to appreciate that 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 practical difficulty. The other thing that I thought of when you were talking is that uh, we, a lot of the uh, people that we've trained have come to us from other countries. And I think the largest single contingent have been from India and or Indian Americans. And there seems to be a great uh, resonance uh, in that culture with uh, the philosophy of integrative yeah. medicine. It's really interesting to to think why that might be. I've got my own views on that, mm-hmm. particularly being from that background myself, but I'd be interested as to your take on why you think that might be. You know, possibly because of a, a, uh, a different attitude toward nature and, uh, and natural, you know, natural healing and, uh, natural products. That's, that's a possibility. Um, but I'm not really sure because, uh, there's among educated uh, Indians, there's a great deal of prejudice toward Ayurvedic medicine, for example, yeah. which is seen as you know something of um, for lower class people and uneducated people. Um, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but it's a it's a clear observation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer either. Just speaking from the conversations I've had in my own upbringing, I think this idea that food can be medicine is kind of instilled within you Mm -hmm. as you grow up. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I don't recall having conversations with my mum about the Mm anti-inflammatory properties of turmeric, for example. But I do remember um, if we were ill, there might be a bit more turmeric going in the curry. (laughs) Or if I had a sore throat or if I was singing at school or performing and I had a sore throat, mum would make me, you know, I remember this little pot she'd put on the stove, she'd cut ginger in, she'd put a bit of, uh, I think, raw honey in, she'd put a bit of turmeric in, Mm -hmm. and she'd make me drink it. So, you know, of course, that's an N equals one experience, but there's this just awareness that, oh, you can change what you put in your mouth Mm -hmm. to kind of change the way you feel, to change your symptoms, to change how you perform or operate in the world so maybe there's that kind of um maybe it's sort of it's just kind of infused within you and i guess with a lot of there's been a lot of indian immigrants to the us to the uk there's loads of us within the medical profession and i guess we don't really learn about that stuff but somehow we know we've got our family background maybe our grandparents Mm -hmm. speak to us about it yet we don't learn about it and and actually it reminds me of something my mum said to me once like 
I think after my second or my third book, mum mum said to me, he said, listen, wrong. a lot of things you're writing about, you would have loved talking to my granddad. You know, I never got to meet him. Everything you're talking about, he used to do. And I was like, it's really quite humbling to go, actually, you know what? This ain't new. This is like, <laughs> and I've never, just to be clear, I've never claimed any of this is new. You know, a lot of this is based on old sure. ancient practices and humans who've actually known how to look after themselves for thousands of years. You know, one of the, uh, the we, we don't remember very much of the specifics of what Hippocrates taught, uh, but one of his main teachings was to revere the healing power of nature. And I think that idea has gotten very lost in the era of modern high-tech medicine. And that's the first philosophical principle of integrative medicine is that healing is intrinsic. It comes from within and that what you, all you can do from outside is to facilitate that process or remove obstacles to it. Um, so I think a, a reverence for nature and understanding the, that healing is a natural process that you're working with that, that's very important. And that, that idea is just lost uh, today in most medical settings. It really is. And I think it's, it's much more problematic than it, than it initially seems because there's been this very paternalistic mm -hmm. approach within medicine. Doctor knows best. Come in, listen to the doctor. He'll tell you what to do. But if we accept that our bodies are built to thrive, you know, they've got this innate healing potential. It almost, you know, if you've got a fragile ego, it's kind of, uh, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's problematic, is it? Because it's kind of like, well, I'm not really getting the patient better. I'm just facilitating that patient's body to do the healing by right. itself. Now, I find that one of the main things that I can do for patients is to instill in them greater confidence about their body's own ability and resilience. And I think many people have no confidence at all in that. And the fact is that most of us are mostly healthy most of the time. And that's remarkable, given how many things could go wrong inside the body, how many things out there have the potential to harm us. It is miraculous that most of us are mostly healthy most of the time. And that is a tribute to the intrinsic healing mechanisms of the human body. This was my frustration in my medical education, not learning anything about that. I think, you know, there should be courses all through medical school on health and healing, on the nature of the healing system, the mechanics of, you know, which make use of the immune system and circulatory system and nervous system. And there certainly is a great input from the mind and non-physical realm. But that's, it seems to me, that's where medicine should start. And, and uh, I have had so many patients uh, over the years who've come back to me and said that the most important thing that you did for me was you were the only physician I saw who told me I could get better. That makes me very sad to hear that uh, in one way. But on the other hand, I recognize that that is something that I can do for people. And I'm not, I'm not giving false hope. I can tell them that because I know from my own experience and my uh, clinical experience that it is possible in most cases for people to get better. Often I'll tell them, I don't know exactly how you can do that. I'll give you suggestions. I can refer you to other people. Uh, you're going to have to do some experimenting, but I know it is possible for you to get better. It's, um, it's such an important thing for a patient to, to hear, but also to, to really believe. I, I definitely feel that that's one of my big learnings in, in, in medicine is 
you've got to empower the patient. The patient has to feel some level of agency over mm-hmm. their health. We, we It cannot be, oh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to give you this. This is going to help you. There, there has to be. If I think back to all the patients who've made really really long-term changes, truly transform their health, their well-being, their vitality, there was always a, a point where they owned it for them. You know, mm-hmm. they became empowered. There's a lot to pick up on there. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit some of that later in the conversation. I want to get onto some sort of, um, you know, practical things that people can think about doing to to improve their health and well-being. And you know, there's a term at the moment that's a, a buzzword everywhere, which is inflammation, right? A lot of people now are talking about inflammation. Chronic inflammation has been the root cause of many of these uh, chronic lifestyle diseases that are afflicting so many of us. And as someone who started studying medicine in the 1960s, I'm interested as to when did you first become aware of, I guess, chronic inflammation as a root cause of disease? When did you start talking about it because it's so fascinating for me to to be talking to someone like yourself who was you know way ahead of it way ahead of the game like what what happened there did you know about it before it came into the the sort of common vernacular and when did that when when did that occur i think i started writing and talking about that in the early early or mid 1980s and and uh, what first caught my attention uh were articles in the scientific literature um, that made it look as if there were commonalities in the origin of diseases, disease entities that I had been taught had nothing to do with each other. Uh, And that in fact, uh, that coronary artery disease and cancer and neurodegenerative diseases, that there might be a common root there in chronic inappropriate inflammation. That is a completely new idea and hypothesis. And I just saw that out there. And it's, I have a good sense of knowing when things are right and that there's going to be evidence to support that. So I got onto that idea very early and it excited me because if these uh, broad categories of disease that we had previously thought had nothing in common. If in fact they have a common root, then there's a common strategy for uh, dealing with them and reducing the risk of them. And that is by doing everything you can to contain inappropriate inflammation. There's a lot of influences on uh, one's inflammatory status, some that you can do things about and some that you can't. Um, you know, one that you can do something about is exposure to uh, environmental toxins. Uh, secondhand tobacco smoke is a major pro-inflammatory agent, for example. Uh, but the, what particularly caught my attention was the possibility that uh, dietary changes could reduce uh, inappropriate inflammation. And I developed an anti-inflammatory diet with that in mind. And and long after I began to uh, look at this and begin writing about this, I began to see other evidence that mental emotional health was linked here as well. And the, this, uh, the cytokine hypothesis of depression, which is a much more recent idea, uh, to me looks much more robust than the serotonin hypothesis of depression, which has led to all the use of uh, pharmaceutical antidepressants. Um, and the idea that, that chronic inflammation and uh, depression are, li- are linked, that's fascinating to me. 
How do you describe inflammation or chronic inflammation to your patients or your students? Well, I usually say, you know, we're all, we all know inflammation on the surface of the body. It's local redness, heat, swelling, and pain at an area that's injured or under attack. And that although it can be uncomfortable, inflammation is the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how the body gets more nourishment and more immune activity to an area that, that needs it. Uh, but inflammation is so powerful and it's so potentially destructive that if it persists, if it escapes its limits in time and space, then it becomes destructive. Uh, and in the short term, it can lead to uh, allergy and autoimmunity. But long term, it looks as if it increases the risk of a whole diverse range of very serious chronic diseases. You know, I think that uh, coronary artery disease begins as inflammation in the lining of arteries. Uh, Alzheimer's disease clearly begins as inflammation in the brain, and that's why uh, anti-inflammatory agents like ibuprofen and turmeric have a preventive effect. Um, and cancer is linked here, too, because uh, anything that increases inflammation also increases cell proliferation. Uh, the two are totally linked. And, and when cells proliferate more, the risk of malignant transformation is increased. So, again, it, it's just fascinating that uh, this is so different from what I was taught in medical school. In terms of foods and this anti-inflammatory diets that you put together many years ago, I wonder if we could sort of talk about what this kind of dietary pattern looks like. Is it more about the sort of general types of foods you're eating or can we see within that some specific both both and i i you know. developed this by using the mediterranean diet as a template because we have so much scientific evidence for that way of eating being associated with uh, you know optimum health and longevity and it's a way of eating that uh, in no way restricts the pleasure of food which i think is extremely important and i tweaked that by adding asian influences to it because i've spent a lot of time in asian countries and there are uh, food, specific foods and, and uh, beverages that I, that in, particularly in Japan, uh, China, uh, India, that I think are you know, very helpful. So um, the first rule of the anti-inflammatory, first of all, it's not a diet, you know, it's, because diets are things that we go off of. So it's an eating plan for life. And the, the first rule is to stop eating or greatly reduce consumption of refined, processed, and manufactured foods. I mean, that's simple. It's that, that kind of food, food being made by somebody else, uh, that is really at the root of a lot of, our, uh, of these chronic illnesses in, in our societies of obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so forth. Uh, so the first step is simply to try to uh, eliminate refined, processed, and manufactured food. And then, you know, next is eating a, a variety of high-quality fresh produce, um, especially vegetables, uh, you know, fruits, yes, but fruits are, are often concentrated sugar sources, and I think should be, we should be more moderate about that. But an array of vegetables with all different colors because those are all protective compounds. I think it is good to reduce the amount of animal protein in the diet. I don't tell people to become uh, complete vegetarians or, you know, I, I myself eat fish and vegetables, uh, but I think restricting animal foods is a good idea. Um, in, increasing the consumption of uh, plant protein in the form of legumes, soy protein, for example. Um, using olive oil as a major, uh, as a main cooking oil and being very careful about the kinds of fats that you consume. Uh, making sure that you're getting omega-3 fatty acids 
which are strongly anti-inflammatory by eating oily fish uh, or supplements of uh, derived from algae if you don't want to eat fish. Um, using spices like turmeric and ginger, which are powerful anti-inflammatory agents. Tea, uh, especially green tea, which has uh, many helpful antioxidant properties. I've developed a, uh, a, a eating uh, forms of carbohydrate that don't raise blood sugar quickly. I, I'm not anti-carb, but I think uh, it's important to distinguish between types of carbohydrates that digest quickly and especially products made from flour and pulverized grains as opposed yeah. to truly whole grains that are cracked either entire or cracked in big pieces. Um, and uh, I have an anti-inflammatory diet pyramid and at the very top is dark chocolate, which I think is a health food and, I, and uh, consumed in moderation, I think is very good for you. The first step when you were describing that was remove or eliminate these highly processed foods. And it just makes me think of something I, I've been sort of contemplating a lot recently, Andrew, which is this, this idea that is it more important? And I guess the, the question itself is artificial, but it's just, a, I guess, a, you know, a thought experiment. You know, is it more important to exclude these problematic, modern, highly processed, I guess, not even foods, food-like substances? Food -like, yeah. or, or is it more important to, I guess, we can keep those in, but add in some of these so-called, you know, superfoods or, you know, your dark chocolate, your berries, those sort of things. I mean, how would you look at that sort of conundrum? Uh, I think it is more important to reduce or eliminate the, the processed stuff. I, I think it is really unhealthy and uh, on all sorts of levels, it's the wrong fats, the wrong types of carbohydrates, not enough of the protective elements. So I guess you could make up for the protective elements by adding some of those other things back, but you're not going to take away the damage being done by the, you know, the unhealthy fats and the unhealthy forms of carbohydrates and the additives. How do you, you know, how do you see these diet wars? And, and, and I'm, again, I'm really interested because you've been across this field for so many years. You know, something has changed, hasn't it, in the last, mm -hmm. I don't know, yeah. 10, 20 years? Like diet is, you know, it's prime time now. Yeah. You know, everyone's talking about, well, not everyone, yeah. not enough people, but a lot of people within the health space are talking about diets. Yeah. There are fights going on yeah. about, you know, vegan versus carnivore versus keto versus low carb. And, you know, I'm interested as to how do you see all that as someone who's been across this for so, so long, has anything happened to modify your view, you know, tweak things over time or, you know, what, what's been going on there? Well, I see, I've seen a lot of these come and go. And I think a lot of the ones that are fashionable at the moment will go. Uh, some of the ones that are popular, I think are really unhealthy. I think a keto diet is extremely unhealthy unless it's for, you know, specific use of kids with intractable seizures, for example. Um, well, why do you say that? Because a lot of people, even within the health space, are are describing 
huge benefits from a ketogenic diet. And I, and I appreciate a ketogenic diet can be done many different ways. I mean, a lot of people can do it with lots and lots of sort of leafy green veg as well to get right. these phytonutrients. But, but you know, why is it you think it's I so I think ten, that these diets tend to be unhealthily low in fiber, for example. I think uh, the restriction of carbohydrates is unhealthy. I think it fails to distinguish between... Um, better and worse forms of carbohydrate. Uh, I think beans are very healthy forms of carbohydrate. Whole grains, I think, are healthy. I think a keto diet is also very unhealthy for the planet. And this is something that we all have to be concerned about today is the, the environmental impact of different ways of eating. And this is, uh, you know, one of the strong arguments for uh, reducing animal protein in a diet, especially beef. And keto people tend to be eating a lot of meat. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the great contributors to climate change. And we can't afford to do this anymore. So for all those reasons, I think that's not a good eating plan. Uh, on, on an individual level, yeah. um, I'm only asking this because I know a lot of people will ask this question. If there's someone listening to this right now um, or, or, or you know, watching this on YouTube or whatever, somehow consuming this information, and let's say, I don't know, three months ago, they went on a ketogenic type diet mm -hmm. and they're now experiencing they've they've lost weight they've got more energy they've got better skin they've got more focus because this is what you hear a lot right so I do. if someone is listening to that is experiencing that and then they're hearing you someone who they really respect say actually you don't think it's that helpful how would you help that individual kind of make sense of that first of all a, a general belief i have is that in many cases, benefits, health benefits that people experience when they change how they eat uh, are really not directly due to the dietary change, but rather to the commitment of mental energy to doing something to improve your health. Um, you know, there's no way to do that experiment, but I think it's not easy for people to change how they eat. And so to do so represents a great commitment of mental energy, and that often initiates a healing response or improves health function of the body. So I think any uh, beneficial changes that you see following a dietary change have to be assumed to be somewhat and maybe in large part due to that. Um, you know, if you want to call that a placebo response, fine. But unless we have controlled experiments to tell how much is due to the actual dietary change, it's very hard to tell. You asked also about any major changes that I've made in my thinking. You know, a big one was that I lived through the anti-fat era in the 1970s uh, when we were told that dietary fat was the ultimate culprit and it was causing, you know, uh, heart disease and all sorts of things. And this was the era in which manufacturers made low fat and no fat products. And in that period, people got fatter uh, and there was really no change in disease patterns. And I think that way of thinking has been totally discredited. Although still, if I go to a spa in many countries, the food that I'm served is ultra low fat food. And people think that's the way you make food healthier is to reduce the fat content. And you know, that has nothing to do with it. I think uh, carbohydrates and the nature of carbohydrates are much more um, relevant there. So yes, I have seen uh, big changes in, in how we're thinking. Uh, and, uh, you know, I expect that there'll be more of them, but our center, uh, put together over a number of years, like for 15 years, we had uh, national nutrition conferences in which we brought together the leading nutrition researchers to present their findings to clinicians. And these were extremely well attended 
conferences. And in putting those together, one of the things I learned is that in the community of nutrition researchers, there's a very high degree of consensus on the big questions. I mean, we know what are good fats and what are bad fats, what are good carbs, what are bad carbs. Uh, but somehow that information does not make it through either the education of clinicians or certainly the general public, because people seem to think that it's all confusion out there. And you know, one day they tell us this thing and then they tell us another, so you may as well just eat whatever you like. And that's not how it is. Yeah, I think that's the big problem with the diet wars that many people who don't feel that strongly get really put off. They they see someone they respect say, I changed my life on a keto diet. They see someone else they respect say, I went vegan and I felt amazing. And And I guess there's a wider problem there, I think, which is... You know, I'm interested as to your thoughts on this, Andrew, but I, I kind of feel we as a society have put a lot of faith, maybe too much faith in experts and other mm -hmm. people. And, and it's mm -hmm. kind of like, well, we need to become our own experts, right? I, I say to people, listen, listen to what they're sharing, then try it yourself. Yes, exactly. You know, tune right. in. Trust how you feel, you know, just because your neighbor did this diet and they mm -hmm. felt amazing doesn't mean that's the right approach for you. I mean, how, how do you see that? Yeah, I feel that way. And also, I worry that some of these very restrictive ways of eating uh, have a very unhealthy impact on social interaction, on ability to enjoy food or to enjoy food together with other people. Uh, you know, I just see this happening all the time. And, and, uh, People saying you have to eat this way. If you don't eat this way, you're going to nutritional hell. I mean, I just, I, I have no patience for that. Yeah. So food is clearly one of these things where we can tackle inflammation. You mentioned avoiding um, sort of air pollutants, toxins like cigarette smoke is also really important to help reduce inflammation. But what are some of the other things that we can do with our lifestyle that can help reduce inflammation? Well, stress has, a, has an effect on, on inflammatory status. And, and, and stress is another uh, significant root of many kinds of, of uh, health problems. I think I would say that learning uh, and practicing methods of neutralizing the harmful effects of stress is right up there with uh, nutrition and physical activity and adequate rest and sleep as one of the planks of healthy living. Um, I, I don't think it's possible to live without stress, uh, but I think you can learn to manage it and not let it damage uh, the body or mind. What are some of your favorite sort of stress reduction practices that, that you find people get real benefit from? Well, by far, my, my favorite are breathing techniques. I think that, that learning how to regulate the breath is the most time and cost effective method of, um, of, of reducing anxiety, of promoting calmness. Um, and I, I've been astonished at how little scientific attention has been paid to breath. And by the way, this is something that comes from uh, Indian culture. If you look at, around the world at places, whether it's martial arts or natural childbirth or athletic performance where breathing is stressed and you try to find where this knowledge came from, all roads lead to ancient India. You know, this is a science that developed thousands of years ago in India and has diffused all over the world. Uh, and and uh, as I say, just astonishing how little scientific research has been done on breath and its ability to change physiology, although that finally is changing. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, you have widely popularized the 478 breath. Um, can you tell us what the 478 breath is? And, you know, when did this start coming into your awareness? And when did you start talking about it? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to the sponsors. Athletic Greens are sponsoring today's show. Now, as Dr. Weil is highlighting in this episode, good quality nutrition is essential for good health. When we feed ourselves the right nutrients, our brain functions better, we have more energy, more focus, our mood improves, and our immune system also will work better. Athletic Greens make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've ever come across, and one tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients including a multivitamin, multimineral, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and I myself take it regularly. Of course, I would ideally prefer that everyone gets all of their nutrition from real whole food. But the truth is, as I've seen time and time again with many of my patients, a lot of us struggle to consistently do that. We have busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutrients. That is why I am a big fan of good quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a brand new special offer where they're offering my listeners a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Now, vitamin D is a really important nutrient for many different functions in the body, including our immune system health. And those travel packs that they're offering are super handy when you're on the move or on the roads. You can check out the special offer simply by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. The mental wellness app Calm are also sponsoring today's show. Now, I've noticed at the moment Many people are really suffering with stress and anxiety. Some of you are returning to your offices. Some of us are starting to travel again. And some of us are still finding it really hard to adapt to the way that day-to-day life has changed over the past year and a half. If you are struggling, please know that you are not alone. Many of us are also struggling these days. And I really think this is where Calm can provide help and support. Calm It's the number one mental wellness app to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, or you can drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds, sleep more, stress less, live better with Calm. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. That's calm.com forward slash live more, which includes hundreds of hours of programming and new content is added each week. Go to calm.com forward slash live more. That's C-A-L-M dot com forward slash live more for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash live more. (laughs) 
It's a yoga technique. So again, thousands of years old, and uh, I learned it from Dr. Fulford, uh, and I've been practicing it since probably the uh, early 1980s, and I have taught it. I teach it to every patient I come into contact with, to all of my students, uh, sometimes to very large groups of people. Um, it, it's so time efficient. It's just, you know, the method is simply uh, breathing in quietly through your nose to a count of four, holding your breath to a count for a count of seven and blowing air out forcibly through your mouth to a count of eight and repeating that for four breath cycles when you're first learning it and doing that twice a day religiously. And that's all. And by simply doing that uh, over time, you know, over the space of a month or two months, you really change the dynamics of the involuntary nervous system. Uh, decrease sympathetic tone, increase parasympathetic tone. The relaxation response uh, lowers heart rate, lowers blood pressure, improves digestion. Uh, um, really amazing results. And, and uh, it, it takes 30 seconds twice a day. I mean, I love recommendations like that, you know, very, very effective, but but free and accessible to everybody, which I think is something that I always try and keep at the back of my mind when, when talking about health. What, 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 there's this theme coming up, um, Andrew, which is, you know, mentioned inflammation before. You were becoming aware in the maybe early 80s that there's this kind of root cause of chronic unresolved inflammation that may be behind or at least contributing in a large way to things like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, you know, depression, whatever. It's like, okay, great. You also mentioned that you teach the 478 breath to pretty much every single one of your patients. So what, what I really love is this understanding and this idea that there are some basics of health, right? There are some, there are some common commonalities. That if we focus on the creation of health in the body, if we focus on reducing inflammation in the body through hopefully lots of uh, you know uh, lifestyle practices, we can tackle multiple different diseases, mm -hmm. even though we're not targeting them specifically. And and it's. You know, as you say that four, seven, eight breath, it sounds like you use that as prevention, as prophylaxis, but also as treatment when somebody has a problem. And I think this is in many ways changing the way that we look at medicine because we have been taught in a, in a certainly I was trained, what, maybe 30, 35 years after you but a very sort of quite a reductionist model. We're very good at giving labels to different diseases. Mm -hmm. we, we separate off the body into different specialities and that can have value, but also we, we, we forget that we're one interconnecting system. And if you change one part of that system, you also have a knock-on effect on other parts as well. Yeah, let me give you an example with the 478 breath. This is by far the most effective anti-anxiety measure that I've come across. It makes the drugs that we use for anxiety look very pathetic by comparison. And I have used that in patients with the most extreme forms of panic disorder uh, successfully, although in some cases it took some time of regular practice for them to get control of it. But the, the difference between treating a, an anxiety attack or panic disorder with a drug like a benzodiazepine and with the 478 breath it's a very stark contrast. When people are panicked or in anxiety states, the subjective experience 
usually is of being out of control. If you deal with that by giving a, a, a medication, you reinforce the false idea that the locus of control is external. And over time, that method becomes less and less effective and often creates dependence. If when a person discovers that they have within them the ability to control an anxiety state by regulation of the breath, it's a revelation. It's totally empowering. And that method becomes more effective with repetition and creates greater independence and greater autonomy. It just couldn't be a greater contrast of those two approaches. Yeah, completely agree. It's about putting, it's just about, it's about connecting the patient to what's going on, the feeling that they have got some control over. Otherwise, it's, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's not only the fact that the treatment itself has very few, if any, side effects, right? right. So right. Yeah. But it's also, you know, it's also that empowerment. And, it, and I guess that kind of leads on to this term mind-body medicine, which I've heard you talk about a lot. And I think it's worth kind of really trying to understand, you know, what do you mean when you say mind-body medicine? You know, do you see the mind and body as separate? Does society see it as separate? And you know, what does that umbrella I think the only really way mean? you can separate mind and body is verbally. I think they are two poles of the same reality. Uh, and I think the, uh, the reigning paradigm in Western science and medicine simply does not see that. You know, that we, we have a materialistic paradigm in place uh, that states that all that is real is that which is physical, that which can be touched, measured, um, I guess in medicine, taken out, uh, and that if you observe a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Non-physical causation of physical events simply is not allowed for in that paradigm. And this is why mind-body interactions have been never accorded their proper due, why research in that area has been stunted, why hypnosis has never been fully accepted as a medical modality, for example, why we can't make sense of, of uh, wart cures. I mean, there's a whole range of things, but uh, that, that is changing. And uh, some of the change has come about with uh, validating placebo responses through brain imaging and showing that there are correlations with you know, activity in particular areas of the brain. So this makes it accessible to people gradually changing. But I would say there's, there's a whole range of therapies under the heading mind-body medicine from biofeedback, hypnosis, visualization, and so forth. In general, uh, these methods are very cost-effective, time-effective, even fun for both practitioner and patient. Uh, and yet they are very underutilized in medicine. And they're underutilized because we just don't take this kind of stuff seriously. In, in my clinical experience, I have again and again seen that the, the root causes of illness are in the non-physical compartment. Unless that's yeah. dealt with, um, all the physical intervention that you do is not going to solve the problem. It's tricky sometimes to present this to patients because uh, many patients are very sensitive to being accused of making up their illness or imagining it, that it's all in their head. And that's not what is meant by this. I, I don't, it's very difficult to use the term psychosomatic because of that connotation. 
I don't think we've, as a profession, we've we've got a bit of a bad reputation in the past yep. for telling people that their IBS, their irritable bowel syndrome is sort of right. kind of in their head or their fibromyalgia is sort of in their head. And I think, so there's a, there's a real defensiveness from people, yeah. understandably. Understandably, that, right. But, but you know, IBS is, is in clearly in the bowel as well as in the head. And, uh, you know, everything is, is in both. Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting that, isn't it? The mind and the body. And I guess now we're getting this field of research, which I'm interested as to what state this was in in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, the last five, 10 years, we've got the microbiome, the gut-brain axis, lots of research showing this bi-directional communication between body, our gut, and the mind in our brains. And... You know, did, were you aware of this uh, early on? You know, what what did the research say, or did you just intuitively and through your experience know that this was going on? I took a course in medical hypnosis at Columbia University uh, right after I finished my internship. It was one of the most fascinating courses I ever took, and uh, certainly made me aware of the research that was out there, and it and it totally resonated with my own interests. So it's I've paid attention to that for a long time. I. Uh, have a colleague that I worked with for many years who's on our faculty, um, who is a, a teaching member of the American Academy of Clinical Hypnosis. And uh, I've sent him many patients. And I remember early on him saying to me that he thought that every um, dermatological patient and every GI patient should first go to hypnotherapy before they went to dermatologists or gastroenterologists, because those two systems of the body have, have the highest ratio of innervation and connection to the mind. Um, and I've absolutely found that to be true. And, and another uh, experience I had uh, shortly after he said that, I, the, the leading gastroenterologist in Tucson asked me to have dinner with him. He was in his 60s, and he was very depressed and said that he hoped that I had something that could help him because he said 90% of the patients that he saw had conditions for which his training did not equip him to do anything about. I mean, that's remarkable. Um, and, and I think this is absolutely the way it is. And it's not just for GI disorders and dermatological disorders. It applies to many other things as well. And that doesn't mean you should not work on the physical problem, but you want to also be working on the non-physical aspect of it. I mean, there's two things that come to mind there. That, that 90% statistic is, is a very striking one. And what's interesting to me is that I would agree with that, actually, there's, a, there's, um, so much of what we see, we don't, uh, certainly as medical doctors, we don't have tools that work mm -hmm. really well for them. Yet I feel, I don't know what it is about, I'm not trying to get too down on my profession at all. I'm very proud to be a medical doctor. I'm, yeah. I'm pleased I went through, like you, that, that conventional medical training. But I do feel sometimes that there's a, there's a certain arrogance within the profession mm -hmm. or there's a I don't know what happens at medical school where you go in as a kind of open-minded, curious individual and you come out, or many of us come yeah. out, quite close-minded thinking we know it all and actually anything that we weren't taught has no yeah. value. And yeah. Because, you know, a real striking moment for me, uh, Andrew, was one, it was one of my days as a general practitioner. You know, I moved from specialism into general practice. I was getting quite frustrated with just looking at kidneys mm -hmm. and I really wanted to see how everything linked together. And mm -hmm. I remember one day I'd seen, 
I think close to 50 patients. And mm. I was a bit frustrated. And before I left the clinic to go home, I, I went through the whole list and I asked myself, okay, Rongan, how many patients have you really, really helped today? Mm. And I honestly thought it was about 20%. I thought, mm. yeah, those 20%, I think I've really done something for <laughs> the other 80%. You know, I've I've referred them somewhere. I've given them something to suppress a symptom, but I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I knew that they would be back. And I thought, I can't do this for 30, 40 years. No. Like, there must be more to this than that, right? So yes. why is it that it? some of us look at that with honesty and transparency and go, actually, we're, we're really good at this stuff. We're not so good at that stuff. And why is it that others kind of almost ignore that and just stay within that system of going, no, 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 this is the way to do it. Do you, you know, have you got any answers there? What, what goes on there? Well, I consider myself an open-minded skeptic. I'm willing to look at anything, believe anything, but then I need to see uh, proof. I need to confirm that with my own experience. A lot of people that I run into in medicine and science generally, I would say are closed-minded skeptics, which is very different. And uh, I, I, I think... In medicine, especially, uh, there is a tendency to be suspicious of, defensive about any information that comes from unfamiliar sources. Uh, so, all of a lot of the ideas of that are out there in the world of alternative medicine, you know, anything of that sort is just dismissed as as nonsense without even paying attention to it. The um, the dean of the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona, who gave me the green light to start this center years ago, uh, Jim Dolan, he was a cardiologist and had, had been a psychologist as an undergraduate, which has probably accounted for some of his openness to this. Uh, when he retired, he said that the achievement he was most proud of in his career was starting the Integrative Medicine Center. And he told this... Uh, said this about uh, all the flack that he got for allowing this to happen. And he, he told a story about the attitudes of people in our profession. And I think it's interesting. The observation that aspirin uh, was an anticoagulant and may have a preventive effect in coronary artery disease was first made, I think it was in the 1950s, by a general practitioner in Kansas who noticed that when he he, he was taking aspirin, noticed that when he cut himself shaving that his, he bled more than usual. So he thought maybe aspirin was responsible for this. He started giving aspirin to some of his friends and confirming this effect. And he wrote an article in a journal of general practice saying that aspirin had anticoagulant activities and might be useful as a preventive in coronary artery disease. It took uh, something like 30 years for the medical profession to come around to that point of view. And a major reason why they didn't was that this had been proposed by a general practitioner and published in a journal that cardiologists didn't read. Uh, and it was dismissed as an outrageous idea. And that's within the profession. So imagine when something comes from the world of traditional Chinese medicine or the world of herbal medicine, you know, that, that provokes this kind of the same, same sort of response. When you were giving the definition of integrated medicine, I think you used the word conventional medicine within it. And you just mentioned the phrase traditional Chinese medicine. And it's an interesting thought, isn't it? When we, we talk about conventional medicine or traditional medicine, it's, 
again, there's a, there's a sort of inbuilt arrogance there. Yes, it's it like, is. Well, <laughs> you know, our it, system of medicine is not that old. And if you're going to call something yeah. traditional, I think it should be at least a thousand years old. Uh, you know, some yeah, Native exactly. American it's, medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, but not what we're doing today as allopathic medicine. I mean, that only goes back maybe a hundred years. I mean, what is incredible is to see as you said, with, with breathing, but there's a lot of science now coming out, isn't there, to support what these ancient healing modalities, mm -hmm. you know, traditional Chinese medicine, Indian Ayurvedic medicine, have been talking about for years, whether it's a period of time each day without food or, you know, a period of time every 24 hours where you're not putting food in, whether it's breathing practices, whether it's um, the fact that different organs have different genetic activity mm -hmm. and that they're, they're, they're more or less active at different parts of the day. I remember the Guardian newspaper in the UK covered a study maybe two or three years ago, which was showing, you know, it was about the circadian clock and how the liver is more and less active at certain parts of the day. Other organs are as well. And the, and the kind of conclusion was, oh, so we can then use different medications mm -hmm. at different mm -hmm. times in the day. And okay, that may be one of the conclusions, but I was also thinking, have traditional Chinese medicine and Indian medicine not been saying this for thousands of years, that there's a different rhythm to different organs at different times of the day? And I guess for you as someone who's been preaching this message for a good 50 years, you're now seeing a lot more mainstream support in a way that you presumably you weren't 40, 50 years ago. I guess for some of these other modalities, not that they need it, I guess, but it must be quite gratifying to see, oh, these guys are kind of catching up to what mm -hmm. we already knew. You know, as I say, there, there are ideas in these systems that to me seem so powerful and useful. And there's other ideas that that don't seem that way. And I, I, I look at all this and I'm very selective in what I take from, from other systems. One idea that... Uh, I find very powerful from uh, Chinese medicine. Uh, I have a, another colleague, an MD in uh, New York, who practices what he calls modern Chinese medicine. And uh, he, I once heard him say that if you could summarize all of Chinese medical philosophy in one sentence, it would be to dispel evil and support the good. In, in Western medicine, all of our focus is on dispelling evil. You know, we identify what we see as agents of disease or causes disease, and we blast them with uh, weapons, usually pharmaceutical. And we really pay no attention to supporting the good, which are the intrinsic, uh, the intrinsic resistance or defensive functions of the human body. And, and just as a concrete example of this, if you look at the way we manage gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, you know, we use these very powerful medications that suppress production of stomach acid. You know, we say that's the problem is too much acid in the stomach and we stop it with a very powerful drug. Um, that's an example of dis the dispelling evil philosophy. We do nothing to support the defensive function of the body, which is how do you make the gastric mucosa more resistant to the erosive action of, of stomach acid. And there are various ways of doing that. There are natural products that do that, adjustment of diet. I, I see so many patients who are put on these medications without any dietary history being taken, without any warning yeah. of the addictive nature of these drugs, with the long-term problems that they cause. I mean, that's, that's the unbalanced uh, 
Western approach that could really benefit from paying attention to that uh, idea from Chinese medical philosophy. Yeah, and the system, the, the modern medical system really feeds that, doesn't it? Because, you know, as you said that, I had, I had a flashback to, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, I'm going to guess, mm-hmm. in clinic, you know, a lot of patients waiting outside. This is much more conventional NHS general practice. And I can't remember the exact patient, but they, they'd come in, they'd still got these uh, gut acid type symptoms. Mm-hmm. They'd already been on, I think they started off on a meprazole, the proton pump inhibitor. Yeah. Then a the doctor had changed it. It wasn't working to lansoprazole. And then I think I had a protocol which said, oh, there's a new one called ezometrazole. Let's try that. That's the third line that's recommended by the local hospitals. And you just get into this maddening uh, vortex where, you know, no one's understood the root cause of it. They've been put on one proton pump inhibitor. My understanding is that the early trials on proton pump inhibitors only looked at their use for a few weeks, three, exactly, four weeks exactly. maximum. And, which now pe- people yeah. are on them for 10 plus years just on repeat right. prescriptions. And this is a problem that I think is really not appreciated that I've been trying to call people's attention to, both my colleagues and patients, that when you use these powerful counteractive agents long-term, you run into a problem I call the homeostatic trap. That the body will push back against what you're doing. So if you try to block the production of stomach acid with a drug, over time, the body is going to try to produce more acid. So if you lower the dose or stop the medication, there's going to be an outpouring of acid much worse than you had to begin with. And so people think, well, then I can't get off these. I have to take them. And over time, you are worsening or prolonging the problem. And the same thing happens with depression. You give uh, SSRI antidepressant drugs to uh, increase serotonin at neural junctions, how is the body going to respond to that? It's going to try to, it'll make less serotonin and it will drop serotonin receptors. So that if after a year of use, you try to get off that or reduce the dose, depression is increased. Uh, You know, there's, there's even a name for this now. It's tardive dysphoria, which is lingering, lingering depression as a result of treatment. Uh, And you see this again and again with so many of our pharmaceutical agents. And, and there's a double problem, isn't there, Andrew? There's this problem that the person who initially came to the doctor with these heartburn acid symptoms that were causing them problems at work or that when they went to sleep, because we didn't address the root cause then, we gave them a pill which may, unless we have been really clear that this is a short-term intervention to help yeah. your symptoms while we deal with the underlying root cause, which is where I think those things can potentially have value sometimes for yep. some patients. Short term, yep. You know, if, if, if we explain that, but we disempower the patient, they start taking the pill, they think, oh, I've got a problem that I need this pill to fix. Yep. And then when they can't get off it, they think, yeah, it reinforces, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I have that problem. I, I need the pill or I can't function without realizing your body is reacting. And this, it sounds as though we're talking about rare cases. I bet you, if you go to any general practice in the it's UK, all over the place. You, you will have hundreds, hundreds if yep. not thousands, thousands of right. patients at every practice yep. who are in this situation. And it's so frustrating because once they're on it, it is challenging, Very challenging to get them off it. Very challenging. And by the way, Rongo, when I was growing up in the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, uh, reflux, gastric reflux did not exist. People had heartburn 
And they dealt with it mostly by taking calcium carbonate, mint-flavored calcium carbonate, which is relatively safe. And I think most people understood that heartburn was your stomach's way of telling you that you'd mistreated it. Either you ate too much, you ate the wrong things. Uh, but now this has become completely medicalized into this condition, you know, due to too much stomach acid, and you treat it with these powerful medications yeah. and then go about your business. And as I say, almost every patient I see who is in this situation where they're dependent on the drug and can't get off, they were started on them without any questions being asked about what they were eating, uh, were they drinking coffee, were they smoking, what their stress levels was. There was no inquiry into any of that. Yeah. Or how stressful their lives were. Were they were they eating on the move while, yeah. you know, it, it sounds so basic, but there is always, there's almost always a way to help people with those symptoms if you take the time to understand what's causing them in the first place. And it's... you're spot on. It's this medicalization of symptoms, whereas, you know, it's the body sign. It's trying to talk to you and raise, raise, it's trying to scream at you. You got to do something differently, right? You're not treating me well, but instead of listening, I guess it's reflective of just how, how busy and stressed out people are now, whether it's the, the doctors in practice, whether it's the patients in their busy, busy lives, that it's almost, it kind of feels like it's the perfect storm. Medicine has got these quick fix solutions for busy people who don't feel they've got the time and energy to make change. Yeah. And then you end up in this really problematic and, and quite toxic situation. Well, this is, this is the perfect opportunity for doctors to be teachers uh, and to be able yeah. to explain to patients why long-term use of these counteractive pharmaceutical strategies is not wise, that it's going to get you into worse trouble uh, and may produce bad effects of its own, and what the root causes of these things are and what changes you can make. Um, you know, that's, that's what we should be doing. And it is very rewarding to do that and to see, you know, good results. Yeah. You mentioned the placebo effect before and the power of the mind. And I've shared on this podcast before that my realization over the past few years has been, yes, food, movement, sleep, stress, super important. They are very, very important things to try and help everyone with. But actually, if you go one step further, I really am feeling more and more that it's the mind, it's our belief Mm -hmm. systems up here, how we view the world actually determines a lot of those behaviors in the first place. And unless we we tackle that, yeah, we can make big improvements with food and movement and stress. But at some point to really get that long-term change, we've got to tackle what's going on up here. And you mentioned the placebo. And it's interesting that there's such powerful research behind the placebo, but how do we talk about it in medicine, it's it's the most derogatory thing in the world when you were talking about trials, isn't it? It kind of it speaks to how little credence we give or have typically given yes. to the power of our minds. Yes, the the two most common usages of the word placebo I hear in medicine are how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word there is just or we have to rule out the placebo effect. You know, we should be ruling it in. Placebo responses are pure healing responses from within, mediated by the mind. And that's what we should be trying to make happen more often. That is the art of medicine. How do you present treatments to patients? 
to get the maximum healing response with the minimum direct physical intervention. Again, something that I began writing about long ago and, and talking about, and I'm happy to see gradually a, a change coming about in that area. Uh, but that word is so charged and so loaded. And, you know, the thinking that placebo responses are imaginary and they're not as important. Here's a little, there's a little uh, assignment that I like to give to medical students and also to doctors in training as well, is to go into, pick up any medical journal at random that reports randomized controlled uh, testing of drugs and look up an article and flip to the back where there's a table summarizing the results. In the placebo group, there will always be, always, one or two or a small number of subjects who show all of the changes produced in the experimental group. In other words, any change that we can produce in the human body with a pharmaceutical agent can be exactly reproduced in at least some individuals some of the time purely by a mind-mediated mechanism. To me, that is the most important single fact that's come out of this whole era, 70 years of randomized uh, controlled drug testing. Uh, and that's what we should be trying to figure out how to take advantage of and make happen more of the time. It's something that doctors who I train ask a lot. They, they say this, and I'm assuming you've heard this a lot as well. You know, Dr. Wild, Dr. Chastity, you know, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, patients don't, patients just don't do what I tell them to do. Mm -hmm. And I find that language and that phrasing very telling in and of itself. Uh, what I tell them to do, I think is yeah. uh, potentially problematic. Yeah. And there's this kind of thing that, oh, you know, I know everything, but the patients just don't do what I ask them. And <laughs> one thing I teach um, doctors is when I get asked what's the most important thing I've learned in 20 years of seeing patients, my answer is always connect first, educate second. Yeah, and I always say some to model behavior for patients. As I said this earlier, that you have to model, you have to embody the changes that you want to see in others. So uh, you have to model health for your patients yeah. and healthy living. But I'm, I'm, I mean, I totally agree. And I, what I, why I'm so passionate about that is I've realized that until the patient across the table from you has really connected with you, made eye contact, yeah. like really felt heard. Mm -hmm. I just don't think they're that willing or that engaged to then take the next step. Whereas if we just rush in to give the solution, yeah. it just doesn't work that well. And then if you take that outside medicine, because what is the patient-doctor relationship? Well, it's a relationship, isn't it? So how does it work with your partner or your wife or your children? You know, who responds well to just being told what to do? It's always about feeling seen, feeling heard, really, really having someone validate who you are and how you're feeling yeah. before you take that next step. And I, it's such an obvious thing. Again, we're not taught it in medical school. But for me, uh, Dr. Wild, that is one of the big truths that I've learned from seeing thousands of patients. And I'm, I'm interested as to your view on that. Is that something you've come across before? Would you agree with that? Or, or would you I modify very that much somewhat? agree with that. By the way, one of the reasons that I like doing the 478 breath with patients is that it establishes a very intimate connection with the patient to breathe with them. Uh, they're not expecting that. They're not used to that. And I find that facilitates 
further connection. Uh, also, a, a practical technique that uh, we teach to uh, the people that we train is motivational interviewing. And this is a, a technique developed recently. It's a dialogue that you have with a patient that helps um, you and the patient identify mental patterns that are obstacles to making changes in behavior and lifestyle, and then helping them develop alternative mental patterns that facilitate the changes you want. It's a very useful technique, and it's something practical that can be taught. I mean, speaking of Hippocrates that you mentioned before, a, a phrase that popped into my mind was it's, I think this is Hippocrates, it's more useful to know what sort of person has a disease than what type of disease a person has. And I think that really that is, again, something I've figured out over, over many years of getting frustrated and not being able to mm -hmm. help my patients as much as I wanted to. I sort of came to that truth that way. And that, I guess, speaks to the power of the mind and how we're all sort of individual. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned the power of the mind. I'm, sorry, yeah, go, no, go you please. made me think I just had a flash on being in medical school and being told by an attending physician, you know, go see the gallbladder in room seven. Yeah. <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. It says it all. D am I right in thinking that you've shared a story in the past where I think you had taken some form of psychedelic mushroom potentially, and whilst you were under uh, its influence, you were able to do a yoga pose yeah. that you had unable, that previously you weren't unable to do. I wonder if you could just share that story because I, th I think that really speaks beautifully to how our mind can get in the way. It's a, an example of what the potential of these agents is. It was actually LSD, and I was, I think, 28, um, living in, the, in a rural area in Virginia. It was a beautiful spring day, and I uh, took LSD with a group of friends outside. And I had been uh, just starting to practice Hatha Yoga. I had been doing it for, I don't know, a month or so. And one posture that I had a, a really hard time with is the plow, uh, where you lie on your back on the floor and you raise your legs and then try to touch your toes behind your head. Um, I got my toes within a foot of the floor and I had a horrible pain in my neck and I just got stuck there. I couldn't, I couldn't do it no matter how much I practiced. And I was on the verge of giving up. I, I thought I was too old. My body was too stiff. Uh, and then under the, on this day, when I uh, was under the influence of LSD, I felt terrific. My body felt really elastic. I was, you know, wonderful. I thought, gee, I ought to try that. So I lay down and I was lowering my feet. I thought I had about a foot to go and they touched the ground. I couldn't believe it. And I did it repeatedly. I was just so joyful to be able to do that. The next day I tried to do it and I got my feet within a foot of the floor and I had excruciating pain in my neck, but there was a difference. I now knew that it was possible. And up to that point, I didn't think so. And so I kept at it. And in another couple of weeks, I was able to do it. If I had not had that experience, I think I would have given up. So, uh, the, uh, you know, I saw a possibility that I did not believe in and that motivated me. And I think there's tremendous potential for um, psychedelics in, in medicine, not just in uh, psychiatric medicine, of showing people that it's possible to experience their bodies in a different way. I think that's very applicable to chronic pain, for example, allergies, autoimmunity. Uh, but there's other ways of, you know, of, of 
getting glimpses of that as well. You know, one of them is simply meeting uh, a person who's had your illness and is now better. And if I can arrange uh, for patients to meet other people who have are well, who've had their same illness, that's a very powerful way of overriding any negative predictions they've had. You mentioned psychedelics and sort of my feeling is that in America, at least the things and the interviews and the conversations I consume from America, a lot of quite prominent people seem to be talking about the potential value of uh, certain psychedelics for certain conditions. And I know, I think Johns Hopkins, I think uh, lots of prestigious institutions, research institutions are now studying this. So I wonder, you know, you're someone who was, I think, studying marijuana and its effects on health in the 1960s, a long time ago, maybe one of the first people to do this. I wonder if you, for, for, for any listeners who are naive to this, who've never heard about this, you're a super well-respected doctor, you train at Harvard Medical School. Could you just outline, you know, what are psychedelics? Uh, how can they provide utility for people? And why have they been demonized for so long? Well, psychedelics are, there There are two groups of them chemically. Uh, there are natural sources of them and they're chemical sources of them. Uh, these are substances that I, I think have extremely low potential for toxicity, probably lower than any other drugs that we know of. Um, they can produce very dramatic psychological effects that are, that are quite dependent on set and setting, on people's expectations and on the environment in which they're taken. So the most common ones are LSD, psilocybin, uh, mescaline, which comes from the peyote cactus. Psilocybin is from mushrooms. Um, there is a drug called MDMA, uh, which is slightly different category. Marijuana, cannabis is not a, a, a psychedelic, it's something else. Um, but uh, there was a, a lot of research interest in these in the 1950s. Um, and and some really wonderful research on them. And then uh, it all got shut down when uh, in the wake of uh, of the hippies and, and uh, Timothy Leary and uh, very restrictive laws were passed against them. And only now recently has this uh, come about again. And it's not just in the, in the U.S., although I think we're farther along. Canada is, uh, you know, well along in making psilocybin available for the treatment of depression. Uh, and there's actually a lot of activity in the U.K. with psychedelics as well and in uh, some of uh, continental Europe. So I, I think this is happening all over and that we're going to see yeah. uh, very quickly that, uh, you know, I think we'll see psilocybin made available for the treatment of uh, drug-resistant depression and anxiety, MDMA for uh, PTSD, which is a, a huge problem in in, uh, in America among uh, returning war veterans. Um, so I think we're going to see these uh, uh, compounds made available for therapeutic use. But at the same time, there's tremendous interest in the general public in them. In the pre-COVID, when I was traveling a lot and speaking, uh, Whatever the subject I was talking about, whether it was healthy aging, integrative medicine, nutrition, uh, the questions I got were about psychedelics. You know, where can we, how can we take them? How can we find guides for the experiences? Just tremendous uh, mainstream interest. I I think two months ago, Vogue magazine in the U.S. had a cover story on uh, psilocybin 
you know, that that's kind of mainstream interest that's yeah. really remarkable. Wow. So you mentioned before when we were talking about um, anti-inflammatory diets, you mentioned green tea. Mm-hmm. And I know you are a particular fan of green tea, in, in particular, from what I understand, it's matcha. Can you tell me about, yes. you know, when you became aware of matcha, what happened there and why you're so passionate about people drinking more of it? Uh, when I was growing up, tea was something drunk by old people and sick people. And I drank iced tea, heavily sweetened. Um, when I was 17, I had a chance to live in Japan with Japanese families. And I really came to love green tea. Uh, very good. And I'd seen nothing like that in, in America. And I was also introduced at that time to matcha and the Japanese tea ceremony. Matcha is the powdered green tea that's whisked into a, a froth and consumed in the tea ceremony. And I began bringing that back when I would go to Japan and turn people onto it. Nobody had ever heard of it uh, in in the States. And then sometime in the 1980s, I think this was, again, way ahead of its time, I formed a connection with a uh, Japanese company that produced matcha and tried to sell it through my website, drwild.com, but it was not the right time for it. And then uh, it's been quite amazing to me to watch uh, how fashionable matcha has become in recent years. But uh, I was concerned that most of the stuff that people were drinking was not good quality because uh, matcha is so finely powdered that it oxidizes very quickly and it loses its bright green color and and uh, good flavor. And so I wanted to make really good quality matcha available and I again formed a relationship with another Japanese company near Kyoto and uh, formed a company called Matcha.com, Machikari, that's selling this and, um, you know, turning a lot of people on to, to, to this. I think it's a wonderful product. First of all, there's a great deal of research on the health benefits of tea in general, on green tea in particular, uh, a lot due to its antioxidant uh, content. Uh, matcha is different in that the leaves are grown in a way that increases the content of antioxidants. And and it also has a high content of an amino acid called L-theanine that has a calming effect. And I think that modifies the effect of caffeine uh, and makes the stimulation of of tea and matcha in particular uh, very different from that of coffee. It does not have the jangling effect of, of coffee. It does not leave you with a crash when the stimulation wears off. People say it causes a state of calm alertness um, that I think is very desirable. So I think it's a good thing. Much is also beautiful and, uh, and delicious, and I'm going to have a bowl of it after we finish talking. There's a ritual, isn't there, in Japan as to how this is prepared, though. And I, I, I sort of feel like this, the, the matcha tea that you sell... When, what are people buying? They're buying the powder that they then they buy have the powder, to... and I don't care what they do with it. I mean, if they want to use an electric whisk, if they want to make a latte out of it, if they want to sweeten it, you know, however they want to do it. I, I like doing it in the traditional way, which is using a bamboo whisk in a small amount of hot water unsweetened. Um, but, you know, in, in Japan now, matcha has escaped the tea ceremony ritual. Uh, that's really a kind of old-fashioned thing, and, and matcha is now consumed mostly by people, uh, not as part of a ritual. Although I think 
um, there's a long association of tea in general and matcha in particular with meditation. And uh, again, very different association from, uh, from that of coffee. Um, I think matcha has been associated with contemplation, with meditation, uh, and the ritual of preparing it. You know, when I whisk it in a bowl, I find that to be very meditative and relaxing. I think what, what you're speaking to there is something that, again, I think is a missing piece in modern life and, and, and even in modern day health promotion, which is, it's not only what you're doing, it's how you're doing <laughs> it. So, you know, if you're taking five or 10 minutes to prepare your green mm -hmm. tea, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's not just a habit. It's, it's a ritual. It's a time to dedicate to yourself, to actually be present with a certain process. And, 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 you know, I mean, interested is your view on this, but I've been thinking recently that we do science. We, we look at green tea or we look at the polyphenols in coffee and we go, oh, this is a great thing. And so we, in our rushed lives, we, you know, we make a quick coffee, we slug it down and we go and then we say, oh yeah, it's got loads of polyphenols and it's really good for me. And I kind of feel, have we lost something somewhere? Because for me, for example, I do drink coffee. I've, I've limited it. To, I know what works for me, but I have it first thing in the morning. Yeah. Now I know people will say, because I'm an early riser, I'm usually up by five. People will say it's you know, it's probably not with your circadian biology, the perfect time to have it. Mm -hmm. However, I would argue that, you know what, that hour, hour and a half in the morning before my wife and kids get up is my sacred time yeah. for myself. Yeah. And I, I make it in a very ritualistic way. I, I don't yeah. slug it down while doing something else. I'm paying attention to it. And I, I feel actually for me on balance, when you take into account yeah. everything, that forms a very important part of my day. And, you know, I, I feel more and more we're missing this piece yeah, I, when we talk I about health. You, I agree with you, and I, I would extend that to eating in general. And one of the things that um, has struck me, when I, especially when I spent time in Italy and in France, is how different the attitude is of people toward eating. Um, you know, that, that in the U.S., you're rushed out of restaurants. Uh, it's in a hurry. Uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, is this healthy? Is this not healthy? I think in, um, in continental Europe, especially in France and Italy, uh, there's so much more attention and time given to the enjoyment of food, uh, to lingering over it, to sharing, um, eating in company as a social ritual. And I think that has, you know, as much to do with uh, lowered rates of obesity, for example, as, you know, the what, what people are eating. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a study, a UK study, I think it was the University of Birmingham, um, a few years ago showed that actually, if you eat in a rush while distracted, so doing something else, watching television, you eat more at that meal and at subsequent meals for the rest of the day, uh -huh. right? Which, which again, really speaks to what you're saying. You know, there, there are, it's not just what you're eating, it's how you're eating. Yeah. It's the intention. It's what's going on in the mind as you're eating. Yeah, um, yeah super interesting. So I, I, I feel you've, uh, you, you've definitely uh, sparked my interest to have some uh, matcha tea this weekend. What's the, what's the what's the URL? I think it's it's, it's just matcha.com. Matcha.com. Much, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
What about your daily routine? I mean, you're someone who has been sort of, you know, really a pioneer in this field. And I think a lot of us would be interested to know how do you, I mean, you know, how old are you now? I think it's... I am 79. I mean, 79, incredible and looking in tip-top health. Um, what do you do on a daily basis? Because I think it would be quite... I if get you're, up if early, you're happy I, to share. I beat you wrong on. I got up at 4.20 this morning. I tend to get up when the sky starts to get light and that's my best time. I uh, do some sitting meditation in the morning. I have uh, two dogs. I come down and feed them. Um, I usually have, I might have my bowl of matcha and something light to eat. And then I take the dogs on a walk. Um, I have a garden that I tend to, I grow a lot of my own food. I try to get uh, walks in or swim every day. Uh, that's my favorite form of exercise. Um, I'm mentally active most in the morning. If I'm going to write, or or, or do intellectual work, I like to do that in the morning. And uh, afternoons are more for relaxing, reading, uh, spending time with friends, uh, preparing food, cooking. Um, you know, that's, that's my usual day. And I, I'm usually in bed by usually nine at the latest 10. Yeah. Love it. So much to think about there. Um, just to sort of close off this conversation, Dr. While I'm interested, um, you've seen a lot of changes in healthcare over the past 50 years. You've seen things come in, things go. You've seen things take the public interest and leave the public interest. If you look at the US healthcare system, because I know that's where you're based, yeah. I know you've traveled the world, so you're probably quite familiar, mm -hmm. I think, with other yeah. healthcare systems. It's very easy for, I think, many of us to criticize our own healthcare systems, other healthcare systems. But if, if you were to look at the US healthcare system, yes, there are some negatives which you've spoken about before, you've spoken about on this show. You can perhaps recap on what some of those negatives are. But are there any positives that we can take that around the world we can learn and go, oh, God, America are doing that really, really well when it comes to health. You know, I'm really interested as to your view on that and, you know, how other countries need to evolve their healthcare systems as well. Well, we don't have a healthcare system in the U.S. We have a disease management system and it's functioning very imperfectly and getting worse by the minute. And also we, as the richest nation, are unable to guarantee basic healthcare services to all of our citizens. That's unconscionable. So those are the big black marks. I think as a result of the economic collapse of our healthcare system, you know, we, we're spending an outrageous amount of our gross domestic product on healthcare and have terrible health outcomes. Uh, that's unsustainable. But as a result of that, that is what's fueling the integrative medicine movement, which is much more developed in the U.S. than it is anywhere else. If our healthcare system were not in such trouble, our institutions would not be open to this. You know, a lot of the people that come to the fellows who come to us to study are sponsored by their institutions, by their hospital systems who are paying for wow. their tuition. You know, this would not be happening if the economics of healthcare in this country were in such a mess. Uh, so, and I see this happening around the world. You know, we were not getting any people from the UK until very recently, for example, or from Western Europe. But as, as the economics of healthcare begin to deteriorate everywhere, 
um, there is openness to integrative medicine. And I think that's the great change. Do people from around the world have to come to America to do that residency or can they do it online? It's online. We have had, uh, you know, until COVID, we had three residential weeks in Tucson that were scattered through the the two-year fellowship. Uh, But in the past two years, we've done it all online and we may now go back to some uh, residential teaching. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get a link from you. We'll put it in the show notes yeah. for people and doctors who are interested in that. You mentioned universal healthcare. Of course, that's something we do have yeah. in the UK. We have the National Health Service, which is something this country is very, very proud of. But something I've been thinking about over the summer is, you know, I'm on a social media hiatus at the moment for four weeks. And it's really the time of year where I really feel I really get to tune into my own thoughts again and what I think rather than being influenced by what I'm reading online each day. And I've been thinking about the NHS and of course, you know, incredible benefits of having something like the National Health Service. You know, my own father who had lupus when he was 59, kidneys failed, dialysis for 15 years, no problem, all paid for, you know, if he was in India or in another country around the world and he couldn't afford dialysis, Mm -hmm you know, I wouldn't have had those 15 years with yeah. that that I had. So there's there's huge benefits. But in an era, in the 21st century, in an era where the majority of our health problems are driven by our collective modern lifestyles, yeah. I'm really interested as to, is there any downside of having this kind of universal healthcare system whereby we're not really incentivized personally to look after ourselves because actually if you look after yourself you never even need to access the doctor so you're not even getting what you put in i'm just sort of it's a thought experiment for me at the moment to figure out is there any downside here do do, do, do you do you see what i'm getting at yeah but first of all i don't think it's sustainable because in the uk as everywhere now you have an aging population uh you have epidemics of lifestyle related diseases you have increasing costs of the high-tech interventions, which is is what conventional medicine depends on. And all of those trends are making healthcare increasingly unaffordable. So the system cannot go on that way. And and the issue that you raise, that this really does not provide incentives for prevention uh, and for people taking responsibility for how they live and managing their disease risks, it's all feeding into this. So I, I can't see that this can go on. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's well. It's been a been a real honor uh, to speak to you today. I could have spoken to you for many more hours, and I hope we get the chance to Good. meet at some point in yes, the future when the world opens that. up. Um, just to finish off, then this this podcast is called "Feel Better, Live More." When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our life. You've shared a lot of things today on the show, and I wonder if we could just finish off with you sharing some of your most practical, most impactful tips that you've seen over 50 years make the most difference in people's lives. I think really trust in and pay attention to your body's healing ability because it is your greatest asset. You know, learn the basic uh, facts about nutrition, avoid processed manufactured food, and really pay attention to breathing and learn how to breathe. I mean, that's absolutely basic. Thanks so much for joining us. That's for all your work over the years. And I hope we get to meet at some point in the future. 
Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you might be able to take away and start applying into your own life. And of course, let me and Andrew know on social media what you thought. Before we finish, I really want to let you know about Friday Five. It's my weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity to get you ready for the weekend. There's usually a practical tip for your health. I'll often write about a book that I've been reading or an article or video that I found inspiring. I might share a recipe that I'm making, and I typically finish off with a quote, an inspirational quote. I hope that has caused me to stop and reflect. Now, I really do get such wonderful feedback from my Friday Five readers. Many of you tell me that it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So, if that sounds like something you would like to receive every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com/friday5. Of course, don't forget about my new podcast membership offering that I mentioned right at the top. Ad-free episodes and a monthly Ask Me Anything show. You can find out more at drchatterjee.com forward slash membership. And if you enjoyed listening to this week's podcast and found the content useful, please do take a moment to share it with your friends and family. You can do this on social media. You could send your friends a link to this episode right now along with a personal message. Please also do consider leaving a review whichever podcast platform you listen on. And of course, if you can, please do support the sponsors. You can see the full list of discount codes at drchatterjee.com forward slash sponsors. If you are new to my content, you may be interested to know that I have written four international books so far. They're available all over the world. They cover all kinds of different topics like mental health, nutrition, sleep, stress, behavior change, weight loss, so many different topics I've written about. So please do take a moment to check them out. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week and please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on so you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. And if you weren't aware, as well as my brand new episodes on Wednesday, a shorter, what we call a bite-sized 10-minute inspirational episode usually comes out every Friday. So keep your eye out for that one. And always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. <laughs>